Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. First Corinthians chapter 13, 1 through 7. If I speak in the tongues of men and the angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It's good to see you all today and uh, welcome you on this first first Sunday of 2021. Thank you, Angie, for sharing the word with us today, and uh, thank you, Ben, for uh, sharing as well and leading us in worship. In the verses that um, Angie just read to us a moment ago, specifically in the first three verses of that passage in 1 Corinthians 13, I think God says, I want you to understand something. God says, I want you to understand that what matters most in life is love. What matters most in life is love. I mean, he tells us in those opening three verses that if we don't live a life of love, then nothing we say will matter, nothing we believe will matter, nothing we know will matter, nothing we give will matter, nothing we accomplish will matter. In other words, if we want to live a life that matters, then we need to live a life of love. Live a life of love. God says that I can have the eloquence of a great orator. I can have the uh, knowledge of a genius. I can have the faith of a miracle worker. I can have the uh, generosity of a a philanthropist and the achievements of of a superstar. I can have all of that. But if I don't have love, not only is all of that worth zero, but the text tells us that I'm worth zero if I don't have love, if I don't have love. So if I want what I say to matter in this new year, and if I want what I know to matter in this new year, and if I want what I believe to matter in this new year, and if I want what I I give and what I accomplish to matter in this new year, then you and I need to intentionally and we need to consistently choose to practice love. We need to intentionally and consistently choose to practice love. It's what we need to do if we want our lives to matter. It's what we must do if we want our lives to matter. So then how do we do that? Well, we've learned previously from verse four that love acts with kindness. Love acts with kindness. And we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan and gleaned some truths from that about what kindness looks like, what practicing kindness looks like. We've also learned from verse four that love does not envy. 
And we talked about what we need to do in our lives to sort of put aside envy and put envy out of our lives. We also learned that love practices humility. Well, today we're going to turn to verse 5, where we read in verse 5, love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. In other words, love practices showing respect. Love practices showing respect. It's not rude. Doesn't insist on its own way. It practices showing respect. Now, respect is a word that we're probably pretty familiar with, right? I think the word respect was probably made famous, and some of you won't be able to identify with this, back in 1967 with Aretha Franklin, right? When she did her song, R-E-S-P-E-C-T. You know, it seems like from that point on, everybody knew and understood the word respect. But actually, before 1967, I can remember quite a number of times my parents and my teachers looking at me and saying, Mark, that was disrespectful. Or Mark, you need to show more respect. So respect is one of those words that's been around a long, long time. So what is respect? Well, I think respect is showing value and honor to others by our actions and our words. If I'm going to show you respect, if I'm going to practice showing you respect, then I will, I will intentionally and consistently value you and honor you through my actions and my words. Maybe we could put it this way in the form of a question. Do people feel inspired and valued, or do they feel diminished and unappreciated when they're around me? It's a good question to ask, right? When people are around me at work, or maybe in my family, or maybe in my neighborhood, or, or maybe at school, when people are around me, do they come away from that time with me feeling inspired, valued, honored, or do they somehow feel diminished? Do they somehow feel unappreciated? Or maybe just simply put, do they go away feeling respected? Do they go away feeling respected? This morning, I want us to kind of share together in a story that's found in Luke 7. In Luke 7, we find a little slice out of the life and ministry of Jesus, and it's a story that I think speaks a lot of truth to this issue of what it looks like to practice showing respect, to practice love. In Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, we read these words. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who, was in, who had invited Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, Simon said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to Simon, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, 
but she has wet my feet with her tears and she has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, as, as we look at this story and as we think about 1 Corinthians 13 and we think about this whole issue of respect, I think what we find in this story are some very clear signs of what it means to practice showing respect. So I'd like us to just take a couple of moments and sort of look at three of those signs of showing respect, because that'll help us understand how we can show respect to others, how we can love, how we can live a life that matters most. So here's the first sign. The first sign would simply be stop, stop, stop talking and listen, stop talking and listen. You know, even though the woman in the story said nothing, at least as far as we know, she said nothing. There's nothing recorded that she said in the text. So even though she spoke no words, wouldn't you agree that the woman in this story was saying something to Jesus, something very loud and something very clear? And wouldn't you also agree that Jesus was listening very closely? He was listening very carefully. He was getting the message. He was getting the, the words and through her, through her actions, the message that she was sending. He was getting all that. She was speaking loudly and clearly with her tear-filled washing of his feet. She was speaking loudly and clearly with the kissing and the anointing of his feet. She had a message, and she was sending that message loud and clear, and Jesus was listening very, very carefully to the message. So here's a question. Would the people around us say about us that we're a good listener? Would the people around us say about us when they're trying to tell us something, trying to send us a message, would they say about us, hey, you're a good listener? That person is a good listener. Do the people around us feel that we are fully present with them when we're physically present with them? Would they feel that way? Or are there people in our world, our sphere of influence, who are sort of whispering about us under their breath, would you please stop talking? Would you please stop advising? Would you just stop and listen? Would you show me a little respect? Would you show me a little respect? I remember uh, when our daughters were teenagers, and that goes back quite a few years. Uh, I can remember when our daughters were teenagers, and we have two daughters, and they're just about a year apart. And uh, so they were kind of going through the whole driver's education thing at about the same time. And uh, if you've had kids sort of go through that, you may be able to relate to this experience. Suddenly, as my daughters were going through driver's education, they became experts in every traffic law. And they especially became experts in all the ways their father wasn't obeying every traffic law. And one of the, uh, uh, I guess, the very nefarious sins that their father was committing in terms of traffic laws was I had this uh, habit of rolling through stop signs. I'm sure none of you have that problem. And, uh, you know, you come up to a stop sign and you kind of look both ways and there's nobody coming and you just don't want to really come to a complete stop because there's really no reason to come to a complete stop. So you sort of kind of roll up to the stop sign and just sort of roll right on through the stop sign and just keep on going. You know, you never really stop. You never really pay attention. You know, I think that's probably a good example of what uh, 
we sometimes do in our conversations. We only slow down long enough to think of maybe what we want to say next, or maybe how it is we can get out of the conversation. And then we roll right through the conversation just to get on our way, to get on with things. We practice sort of the rolling stop when it comes to our interactions with other people. I can remember when I was a kid that uh, my, uh, my parents would sometimes use the little phrase, button your lip. Button your lip. I don't know if anybody used that nowadays. But the idea was to, if you put a button on your lip, you, could, you couldn't talk. You'd stop talking and maybe you'd do a little more listening. I'd often wondered about that, that if I was to take a, an old button off a shirt or a sweater or a blouse or something like that, and I was just sort of put that button in my pocket, that every time when I put my hand in my pocket and I'd feel that button, it would remind me, button your lip. Mark, spend more time listening than talking. Spend more time showing other people respect. Why? Because that's practicing love. And that's what matters most. That's what makes my life matter. So if we're going to practice showing respect, if we're not going to be rude, if we're not going to uh, insist on our own way, if we're going to practice showing respect, then we need to stop talking and do more listening. Stop talking, do some more listening. Here's a second sign. No U-turn. No U-turn. In other words, keep my promises. Don't go back on my word. No U-turn. You look at the story that we just read a moment ago from Luke 7, and one of the things we notice in this story is that Jesus made a very remarkable promise to this woman. In fact, he, he repeated it twice. First of all, he said it to Simon the Pharisee, and then he said it to the woman. In verse 47, he says, therefore, I tell you, Simon, this woman's sins, which are many, they are forgiven. That's a promise. And then later on, he looks at the woman and he says to her, your sins are forgiven. That was a major promise. And I believe that, that Jesus Christ fulfilled that promise, that her sins were, were truly forgiven. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had someone break a promise to you? They made a promise to you. They said they were going to do something, or maybe they, they weren't going to do something. And yet they turned around, they did a U-turn, and they didn't fulfill their promise. How did that make you feel? Did that make you feel honored when they broke their promise? Did it make you feel valued when they broke their promise? Did it make you feel respected when they broke their promise? Or did it make you feel discounted when they broke their promise? Did it make you feel dishonored and disrespected? Think about that. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 37, Jesus said this, let what you say be simply yes or no. In other words, when you say yes, mean it. And when you say no, mean it. When you say yes, keep your word. When you say no, keep your word. You know, most of the time, at least I can speak for me, maybe not for you, but most of the time when I break my promises is because I've made the promise a little too hastily. You know, I didn't think about my, uh, my schedule, didn't think about their schedule, didn't think about how circumstances could change or something could happen out of the blue. I didn't think about all that, didn't think about all the things that I should consider. I just, consider, I just sort of made a hasty, rash commitment. I didn't think ahead, and I ended up breaking my promise. I broke my promises. You ever notice how, um, how promises are very important to children? 
I, I was reminded of this over Christmas vacation. Um, we were in Virginia for a week. I, I have a daughter that lives in Virginia, and uh, she has three kids, and I have another daughter that lives in North Carolina, and her and her two kids, they came up. And so we were all together for Christmas, and, and uh, the kids got some new toys, got some new games and some new other things. And uh, my one granddaughter, her name is Ada. Ada is four years old, and Ada is a, a very spunky child. All right, Ada is a... Um, she doesn't get this from her grandmother. Uh, she has a very sharp tongue, all right? And uh, um, so Ada comes up to me, and I was doing something, and she said, Grandpa, will you come and play a game with me? And uh, so I was right in the middle of doing something, and so I looked at Ada, and I said, Ada, just give me a couple of minutes. Let me finish what I'm doing, and I promise I'll play a game with you. And Ada looked at me, and she said this, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye, and I'm thinking, I've not heard that since I was a kid. I'm not even sure that's legal to say that nowadays. Certainly not politically correct. But here, this little four-year-old, she looked at me after I made a promise. She said, hope to die? Stick a needle in your eye? I, she probably got that from her nine-year-old brother. Um, but I looked at her, I said, what? She said, well, I just want to make sure that you're going to keep your promise. So hope to die? Stick a needle in your eye? I often wondered if we were to do that at weddings. You know, wouldn't that be kind of tricky? So here you have this beautiful bride and this handsome groom, and they're going better, worse, richer, poor, sickness, health, death to us part, and suddenly the person officiating says, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. And the two couple, they look at me, what? They say, well, I just want to make sure you're going to keep your promise. What if we did that with politicians? Can you imagine a debate on TV? And you have the two candidates that are running for office, and, and they're making all of these promises of all the things they're going to do when they get elected. And suddenly somebody in the audience or the moderator looks at them and says, Hope to die? Stick a needle in your eye? You know? They probably get rushed out of the auditorium, you know? Something would happen. But the point is, it's important for us to keep our promises. That shows respect. That's practicing love. That's what matters most. You know, I always love the songs that we sing here in the morning because so many of the songs that we sing in the morning here at, at Harvest are about the promises of God. They're just filled with the promises and the truths of God. And the great thing about God is that God always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promises. In Genesis 9, after the flood destroyed the world, God made Noah, made all of us a promise. He said to Noah, and he put it in his word, so he says to us, I will, I will never again destroy the world with a flood. And every time it rains and after that shower comes and goes and we see a rainbow, we're reminded that even though it was raining or even though it still is raining, God says, I promised you that I will never again destroy the earth with a flood. I make that promise and God keeps his promise. God came to Abraham and Sarah when they were well along in years and they had never had children. She, for whatever reason, we don't know the details, but she couldn't conceive. They couldn't have children. And uh, God said, I'm going to make Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to make you a promise. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to make a commitment to you. I'm going to sign a covenant with you, an agreement with you. And from that son, there will come many nations. And through that son, there will be blessings to, to all the, the peoples of the world. And God was faithful to that promise. And they had that son. Now, folks, Abraham was 99 years old. Sarah was 89 years old when they had that son. I mean, there wasn't a tooth between all three of them, right? At that age? I mean, you can imagine them at Meyer, right? Abraham's picking up the Depends while Sarah's getting the Pampers, right? I mean, that's kind of the way it was in their family. I mean, we look at that strange, but that's kind of the way it was. It was just sort of the truth. 
And when God made that commitment, that promise to Abraham and Sarah, he said, I'm going I'm to seal it with a, with a sign. And that sign was circumcision. And I've thought about that sometimes, and I've kind of understood why it is that Sarah laughed, right? Circumcision. Lucky you, Abraham, you know? And I think Abraham was probably thinking, how come Noah got a rainbow, you know? I mean, they had all that stuff was going on in their heads. But the point is, God kept his word. They had that son, and from that son came, came many nations, and, and from that son came eventually the Lord Jesus Christ, and God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Throughout the whole Old Testament, God promised that he'd send a Savior that would forgive us of our sins, a Savior that would be the leader of our lives, and he sent his son Jesus, and when Jesus came, he promised that God would love us and forgive us and one day welcome us into his heaven if we followed him, and he sealed that promise when he died on a cross. And every time we take communion, and we're going to take communion in just a short while, every time we take communion, we are reminded of a number, a number of things, but one of the things we're reminded of is, is that God keeps his promises, that God's yes is yes and his no is no, and he never goes back on his word, and we feel valued. We feel honored. We feel respected because God keeps his word to us. Well, folks, we show value and honor to others when we keep our promises to them. That's love. It's what matters most, and it's what makes us matter. So if we're going to practice showing respect, we need to stop talking and listen. We need to keep our promises. Here's a third sign. Yield. Yield. If we're going to show respect, I need to yield my rights and serve. I need to yield my rights and serve. When we're around someone that always wants to be first in line, when we're around someone that always wants to get all the attention, when we're around someone that, that, that uh, wants everybody to wait on them and it's all about them, when we're around that kind of person, I don't know about you, but I just don't feel very respected. It's just, it's just, it's just all about them. But when somebody sets aside their expectations, sets aside their desires, sets aside their rights and serves me, even when I typically don't deserve it, I feel so valued. I feel like I matter to that person. Again, going back to our story in Luke chapter 7, I mean, without a word, without perhaps even thinking of the nature of what she was doing, this woman in Luke 7, she just comes up to Jesus' feet. She comes into the house uninvited. She comes up to Jesus' feet, God in the flesh, and see, she yields her rights and serves him. She yields her rights and serves him. I mean, I mean, we can read about it in verse 44 again, and it's so different than what the Pharisee did. I mean, look at the comparison it says, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, but you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He says, Simon, you gave me no kiss. But she, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Simon, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It's an amazing story said, Simon, look at the woman. Look at what she's doing. She set aside her rights, her time. She sacrificed it and served Jesus Christ. Have you ever had anyone in your life who served you without any thought of the cost? Ever anybody do that? Served you without any thought of the cost? You know, I don't know if you've ever read through the letter of 1 Corinthians or read through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, but if you ever read through these two letters, you know that... Um, these are tough letters. They cover a lot of tough subjects. 
And there's a number of times in these two letters where Paul kind of gets in the face of the audience, the Corinthian followers of Christ that were receiving these letters. And he talks very straight with them, very blunt with them. These are hard conversations that he's having with them. But you come to the end of 2 Corinthians, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15, we read this. Paul says to them, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He's looking at them and saying, I wrote you a hard letter. In fact, I've written you two hard letters. We've talked about a lot of tough things. I've had to say some things very pointedly to you, at you, but I want you to know something, Paul says. I will gladly spend and be spent for your souls. He said, I will gladly yield my rights and serve you. So even though the letter was tough, and even though reading the, writing the letter was tough and reading the letter was tough, even though it was tough, don't you think they felt respected? Don't you think they felt valued and honored when Paul said, I will gladly, no matter what, spend and be spent for your souls. Spend and be spent for your souls. In verse 37 of the, the story in Luke 7, it talks about the fact that this woman who came up to Jesus' feet that she brought with her an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, I, I don't know this for sure, but I have, I've, had, I've read it in several places that an alabaster flask of ointment in Jesus' day was perhaps the most expensive perfume that you could buy. In fact, some commentators say that it could cost up to, a, a, up to one year salary just to afford a flask of alabaster ointment. And so she brings in this flask of alabaster ointment. And uh, it's not stated specifically in the text, but we're, we're kind of assuming that this woman was a prostitute. So that alabaster flask of ointment was probably very important to her line of work. But instead of keeping it for her line of work and, and what she was doing, she took that very expensive ointment and she anoints, she pours it out on Jesus' feet. She serves Jesus. She yields her rights and serves him. She serves him. Jesus got the message. He understood that she was saying, I love you. In fact, in, uh, in verse 47, he says to Simon, I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loves much. All the ways that she was showing respect were ways that she was showing love. And when we show respect, we are showing love. We are doing what matters most in life. We are making our life matter. Our life matter. So in this story, Simon the Pharisee, he saw this woman who entered his home uninvited, as best an interruption, at worst as just a, a, a filthy sinner. But Jesus didn't see her that way. Jesus saw this woman as a worshiper. Wouldn't it be a great thing to begin each day, and this is for me as well as for you, if I began each day simply saying, Lord, help me see the people I come in contact with through your eyes. I don't want to see people I come in contact with through the eyes of the Pharisee. I don't want to see the people I come in contact this week as interruptions in my schedule, my plans, my desires, my expectations. I don't want to see the people that come across my path as kind of like, oh, you know, sinner, you know, cooties, you know, yucky. I don't want to get in touch. I don't want to stay away from that person. No, I want, I want to see people the way God sees them. If I was to start to look at people and see people through God's lenses, I think the people around me would feel more honored, more valued, more respected, more loved. I think in this year, my life would matter a whole lot more 
if I saw people the way God sees people, and I was willing to yield my rights and serve them just like God does. So if you and I, if we are going to consistently and intentionally practice, choose to practice love, then we need to realize that love, love acts with kindness, love does not envy, love practices humility, and as we learned this morning, love also shows respect. It practices showing respect. Now let's add another thing, a fifth thing to that. We find it in verse four as well as in verse five. And here in these two verses, we learn that love isn't easily angered. Love isn't easily angered. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, the beginning of verse 4, it simply says, love is patient. And then in verse 5, it adds this, love is not irritable. Now, you might find this interesting that the word patient that is used here in verse 4, it's actually in the original language of the New Testament, it's a compound word. We all know what compound words are. They're a word where two words were put together to come up with a, a new meaning, a new idea. And that's what we have here. The words, the two words are the word makro, and the word makro is the word for slow, and thumos, which means to boil or to get hot. So this word patience literally means that we are slow to get hot, that we are slow to boil, slow to anger. That's what love is. Love is makrothumos. It is slow to boil, slow to get angry. Now, some of us might be thinking right now, well, you know what, uh, Mark, that's, uh, that's not really a problem for me. I'm just not the kind of person that you know, blows up. I'm just not the kind of person that loses control. That's not me. But I want us to think this morning that there's more in one way, more than one way, to not handle our anger well. One of the ways that some of us handle our anger, and we'll just kind of put it in terms of a couple of animals, some of us, when it comes to anger, we're a skunk, Right? I mean, we get into a situation and there's an argument that occurs and we get upset and they get upset and we start to spew and everyone in the room knows how we feel. We stink up the whole place with our anger. We're just like a skunk. Others of us, when it comes to getting angry, we're like the turtle. We pull the head in, pull the limbs in. We just bottle it all in and just let it boil inside of us. We just let it do that. Well, see, God says that there's a better way a better way to deal with our anger. In James chapter 1, verse 19, God tells us, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Slow to anger. Makrothumos. So the Bible doesn't tell us don't get angry. It doesn't tell us we're not to ever get angry. It just says don't become easily angered. It says be slow to get angry. That's love. That's what 1 Corinthians is telling us. So what can I do to not become so easily angered? What can I do to practice love, to practice what matters most? Let me give you four thoughts here, kind of quickly. Number one, what can I do to not become so easily angered? I've got to break patterns of anger. Again, I I cannot speak for you. I can only speak for me. Uh, And Lynn could speak for me. But uh, too often in my life, there have been patterns of anger consistent patterns of anger, ongoing patterns of anger, shameful patterns of anger. And to break those patterns of anger, I know one of the things that helps me is to see that anger through the eyes of God. Because when I look at my anger through my own eyes, I think I'm justified. I think I'm right. I think it was good to get that off my chest. But then I come to Proverbs 29 verse 11, and it says this, a fool 
gives full vent to his spirit. But a wise man quietly holds it back. Proverbs 14, 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. That's God's thoughts on anger. So when I'm hasty to get angry and I, I blow up or I clam up and I keep all that boiling inside or I let all that boiling go out, God says, I'm being a fool. And God says, instead of exalting him, I'm actually exalting folly. I'm putting folly on the top shelf. That's what I'm worshiping. Wow, he never, never thought about anger that way. Or what about this verse in Proverbs 20, 25, verse 28? It says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. In other words, when I, when I kind of spew all that out like a skunk or I clam it all in like a turtle, it's, it's like all the defenses come down, all the walls come down, and I give the opportunity for the devil to come into my life and, and, and accomplish things through my life that, that are not pleasing to God, not honoring to God. So when I... When I when I lose control, when I don't practice makrothumos, I'm a fool. I'm exalting folly. I'm letting all the defenses down, giving it the devil his way. There's another passage. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Be angry and do not sin. In other words, don't be a fool. Don't exalt folly. Don't let all the defenses down. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. So the Bible doesn't say that we should never get angry. It just says, don't sin when you get angry, and says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't let it go past one day. Don't let it wait so long that the boiling anger becomes a frozen bitterness. Settle it in a day. Now, I know you might look at this passage and say, well, what happens if I get angry at two minutes before sunset? You know, well, we got two minutes. Let's settle it right now. You know? I don't think that's the point of the verse. The point of the verse is take care of it before sunset. Take care of it in a day, all right? Don't let it turn into some frozen bitterness inside of you because that's what'll happen. And so if we're gonna break patterns of anger in our life, we need to see how foolish it is, how destructive it is, how, how sinful it can become, how, how, how the bitterness that, can, that it can cause. Because love, love, Love isn't easily angered. Love does what matters most. Love makes my life matter most. So I've got to break patterns of anger. Here's a second thought. Guard my relationships. Guard my relationships. The truth is angry people tend to breed angry people. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 24 says this, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, yes, you, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. There are people in our lives that push us toward anger, that encourage anger in our lives. They say things to us like this. They say, you deserve better. You should be angry. I'd tell them what I think if I were you. God says, don't hang around those kind of people. Don't make friends with a man or a woman, a person given to anger. Instead, in Proverbs 15, verse 1, it says, a soft anger turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger. Now, the word soft there isn't so much the idea of quiet as it is the idea of the word of, of a gentle answer, a, a humble answer. So we want to hang around people that when they're confronted with difficult situations, respond humbly, respond gently. 
That's the kind of people I want to be around because that will breed that in my life. That, that example will rub off on me. So I don't want to hang around angry people. I want to hang around humble people, people that respond softly, that respond gently. That's what we want to do. Here's another thought. Release my worries to God. If I don't want to become so easily angered, I need to release my worries to God. We need to understand that our worries and our anxieties often take us down a road that leads straight to anger. They go in tandem. In fact, we're told that in Scripture. In Psalm 37, verse 8, it says, Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. So fretting not myself and refraining from anger go hand in hand, according to God's word. So I need to think about that. So when I'm struggling with anger, maybe I need to stop and ask myself, what am I worried about? What am I fretting over? What am I anxious about? That'll help me become slow to get angry. But it'll also cause me to admit that a bunch of this is my responsibility. Too easy when it comes to anger saying, boy, that person's made me so mad or that circumstance made me so mad. So easy for me to point the finger at other people and other things when I'm mad and I come back and say, oh, no, Mark, a bulk of the finger needs to be pointed this way. What am I anxious about? What am I fretting over? What am I worried about? We need to think about that, right? In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and verse 7, we read this. Do not be anxious about anything, All right? God's giving us a directive, a command. Don't do it. Well, then what should I do? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So if I want the peace of God instead of an angry heart, if I want the peace of God instead of a stirred up heart, if I want to not become so easily angered, then I need to not become anxious about everything. Well, how do I deal with the anxiety that'll help me avert the anger? Well, it tells us here in the text, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In other words, bring the anxiety to God. Bring the worry to God. God God's good with that. Bring the fretting to him. Pour it all out. And while I'm pouring all those supplications out to him, fill it full of thanksgiving, that he's hearing my prayers, that he understands my anxiety, you know, that he's, 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 he's God in the flesh. He, he gets what it's like to be human. He, he knows all that stuff. He identifies with all of that. He was tempted in every way, just like I am. And as I do all of that, the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. So if we're going to not become so easily angered, we need to work at breaking patterns of sin or patterns of anger in our life. And I think a big part of that is just seeing anger through the lenses of God. We also need to guard our relationships. We need to release our worries to God. And here's a fourth one. Change my expectations. If I'm going to not become so easily angered, I need to change my expectations. Anger starts in our hearts. Anger starts in our, our thoughts. It starts with our expectations of how in my heart and mind I think things should work out or how I think people should act. I mean, it happens at work all the time, right? We get, we get angry at somebody because they just didn't do what we needed them to do. The circumstance at work just didn't go the way we wanted them to go. We get, we get angry about all that. It happens at school. It happens in families. I need to change my expectations. In James chapter 4, verse 1, God says, what causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? In other words, what causes us to get so easily angered? And James says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. We have expectations, desires, our plans, our way, our little kingdom, what we want from people, what we want from circumstances. And when our expectations don't match reality, we become easily angered. So we need to understand that we need to change our our expectations. All of us have a war going on inside of us. It's a war of desires. It's a war of Mark's plans, Mark's way, Mark's little kingdom, and what Mark wants for his little kingdom, and God's way, and God's plans, and God's kingdom, and how God promises to take people and circumstances and all that and work them together for his glory, his plan, his way, his kingdom, if I would just trust him in all of that. So I need to change my expectations. So not becoming so easily angered isn't easy. It's a hard thing to do. We can't do it on our own. We need to meditate on God's word so we begin to see that anger through the lenses of God's truth. We need to get together with groups of people who will encourage patience, makrothumos, instead of encouraging anger. We need to pray to God, pour out our worries and anxieties to him, as well as our thanksgiving, and find his peace in our life. We need to surrender our desires and expectations to his plans and his kingdom. And when we do that, we're not so easily angered. When we do that, we love. When we do that, we do what matters most in life. When we do that, we can live a life that matters, a life that matters. So what did we learn today? Well, in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5, we learn that love is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. We've learned that love is patient. It is not irritable. As a whole in this text, what are we learning? We're learning that love is what matters most in life. We're learning that love is the only way to live a life it matters. Folks, I, I don't know if you're big on New Year's resolutions. Probably some are, some aren't. But I think every one of us would want to say that in this new year, and with all the new opportunities it's going to bring, that we'd like to live a life that matters. We'd like our words, our beliefs, what we know, what we accomplished this year to make a difference, to really matter. And God says in this text, I want to help you with that. I want to let you in on how to do that. And he tells us that love is about making my life and making your life really matter. Let's pray together. Father God in heaven, we, we are thankful for your word today. We are thankful, Father, for um, the practical instruction you give us to really help us. Lord, you, you saved us so that we could live a life that mattered. You saved us so we could be difference makers. And then in your grace, you give us instruction and say, hey, here's how it works. I'm not just asking something of you and leaving you hanging. No, I'm giving you practical instruction so you can do it. Then I give you my Holy Spirit to empower you to be able to do it. So we have salvation. We have the word. We have the Holy Spirit all working on our behalf. Father, we are so thankful for that today. Lord, as a church body, as a family, as small group members, as uh, individuals who go to work and go to school and live in families and interact with people in the community, Lord, might we be a people who live lives that matter this, this year. Might we live lives of love. Might we live lives of love. In Christ's name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.